could turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. We'll be reading 19, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who, fat, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked the sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in the like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides, all this between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from here there to us. And he said, I beg you, Father, Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word, uh, for giving us instruction and truth in it, and I uh, just pray that you would open our hearts to receive the message that Pastor Andrew is going to bring to us today, and uh, just help us to see the truth, and that the only real truth is in you and in your word, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, our subject at hand uh, that we'll be thinking about uh, from the scriptures uh, is the subject of, of hell. Uh, and I know that the subject of hell can uh, make many uncomfortable, uh, that many don't like to think about it. Uh, for some, it may even make them mad, and maybe you feel better if you can ignore the topic. Uh, but that is our focus this morning. What I truly hope and pray, I've been praying uh, for several weeks now that the Lord will be pleased to use this message uh, to help you see the reality of sin, the greatness of the Savior's salvation, that you would put your faith and trust in Him. If you're here and you're already trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, my prayer uh, is that in hearing about the reality of hell, it would heighten your uh, awareness and your appreciation of just how great the Father's love is. I think that will make sense as we 
as we move forward. Uh, but we're thinking about hell this morning. Uh, please know that, that all that I'm going to say this morning uh, is in my best effort uh, to be faithful to what the Scriptures teach. Uh, the Scriptures are our authority in all things, and especially when it comes to the matters of heaven and hell and life and death and eternity. And I also hope that you can appreciate it as we think about hell and talk about hell that all that's being said this morning is being said in a spirit of love. And that may surprise you uh, for many uh, to even think about talking about hell is considered to be very what? Very unloving, right? Uh, but just imagine with me for a moment that you're giving a friend directions and you knew that one road leads to where they need to go, but, but the other road uh, leads to a, a cliff uh, that falls over and would lead to their destruction. So, so one road is safe, and the other one uh, has a sharp cliff around a blind corner, plummets to, plummets to death. Just, just imagine that a friend has asked you for those directions, and, and so I think you would tell them about both of those roads. Especially you would tell them about both of those roads, and it's loving to do because you know that for whatever reason, many people are prone to take that road uh, that drops off the cliff. I would suggest you would be very unloving not to warn your friend about that other road, right? Don't go down that road. That road leads to this, this sharp cliff, and you know, you don't want to do that. This, this is the way to go. This, this is the safe way. Avoid that. Go that way. And for that same reason, it is not unloving to speak about hell. I think it is actually very loving uh, to speak about the doctrine of hell. The most basic truth is that there are only two possible destinations, heaven and hell. Each is just as real, and each is just as eternal as the other. Until and unless we surrender our lives in faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Bible teaches we are headed for hell. So the most loving thing I think we can do for our friends and our family is to warn them about that road that leads to destruction and tell them about the road that leads to life. So yes, hell is real. Yes, hell is awful. Yes, hell is avoidable. It is avoidable. I don't want anyone here uh, to, to go to hell. I, I want everyone here to be treasuring Jesus Christ who took hell for us on the cross. So we're going to ask a few questions about hell. And we're going to do our best to answer them from the scriptures. Uh, if you have the bulletin outline, those questions are in there. Uh, the first question is, is hell real? The second question is, what is hell like? Uh, the third question is, is who goes to hell? And the fourth question is, why is there a hell? And as we make our way through that, especially with that last question, we're going to try and address the, an even bigger question that sometimes come up is, why does a loving God send good people to hell? And those are good questions to ask. I'm, I'm thankful for those questions. Uh, and, and it's important to, again, look at God's word as we seek to answer those questions. Thankfully, God is not cryptic when it comes to those questions. He has clear answers found in his word. So the first question, is hell real? And the biblical answer to that would be yes. 
Yes, and I think some of the best evidence for that is just looking at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We just read Luke 16, and Jesus uses that parable to talk about hell, right? That Andy just read for us. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus warns anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. In Matthew chapter 5, also, verse 29, Jesus speaks very graphically, and he says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Why? It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Again, that was Matthew 5, 29. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ uses strong words again and says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, that's God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's Matthew 10. In John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But then he warns, Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So Jesus, who is the Son of God, the the Word in the flesh, speaks very plainly and openly about hell. In fact, you may or may not know, I think most of us here know, you may not know that Jesus actually talks more about hell than he talks about heaven. He talks very openly about it. He's not, he's not skittish about it. Jesus assumed, clearly believed in the existence of hell and expected others to, to do the same. I believe the doctrine of hell is a subtle matter for Jesus. You cannot believe in Jesus and not believe in hell. You, if, you re, if you reject hell, you're not taking Jesus very seriously because he took it very seriously. And Jesus, by the way, is just being consistent with the rest of the scriptures. The Old Testament speaks much about hell. One summary verse that would be good to just write down and think about is Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where the scriptures say, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And then the rest of the New Testament echoes what the Old Testament and, the, and Jesus himself taught. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, we read these words, that when the Lord Jesus is revealed, so let's talk about his second coming, when, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Listen to what it says, 2 Corinthians 1. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. That's 2 Corinthians 1, 5 through 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, it speaks of the the fearful expectation of judgment by fire. And in Jude, verse 7, it warns about the gloomy darkness reserved for those who do not repent. 
So again, I, I, I've read a number of scriptures. Maybe you're, I hope you're quick and able to write those down. If not, just ask me later. And I'd, I'd love to address any further questions later. Uh, but I think you can see from that how very plainly and openly and consistently the Bible speaks about hell. The Bible very clearly teaches that hell is a real place. And that hell is, is not hell on earth, right? Like we like to say that. Hell's not this, this nightmare in your mind. It's, it's, it's not those things. It's not fantasy. Hell is a real place. And so that leads to, I think, the next question. Well, well what is hell like? What is hell like? And the Bible teaches that first, the, the hell is separation from God. We just read in Luke 16 about that great chasm, Right? separated Lazarus and the rich man. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus uh, again shares about his final judgment and he speaks of this day when he'll come in all of his glory and he sits on his throne and his angels are around him and, and also all in front of him are, are all the nations of the earth, every ethne, all the people of the earth. And to those who uh, by faith receive the gracious gift of salvation, Jesus will say to them, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But in that same passage, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus will say to those who rejected the kingdom of God, who, who did not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it, we, we are told in Matthew 25, verse 41, that Jesus will say to them, depart from me. You hear the, the separation? Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, which we just read a few minutes earlier, says that those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So, so you hear the separation language. What is hell like? Hell is separation from God and from the glory of his power. I would answer that this is in part that what makes hell so horrific because it's the exact opposite of what makes heaven so amazing. Hear that again in Second or in First Thessalonians, where uh, where it's, uh, I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians one, where it says, "Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory." of his power, the apex of joy, the, the height of the believer's satisfaction and pleasure in heaven is going to be to gaze upon the glory of the Father and the Son. That's, that's the glory of heaven. Heaven isn't heaven if Jesus isn't there. The glory of his power will be there. And God will be our God, and, and we will be his people. But those, those in heaven, or those in hell, I'm sorry, will be separated from God's goodness. And that, that's really hard to get our minds around, isn't it? It's hard to get the minds around about being separated from God because even the most miserable person enjoys some of God's blessings. We enjoy and take for granted things, things like fresh water or, or green grass, even if you do have to mow it. We, we enjoy and sometimes take for granted the cool breeze. We enjoy 
having electricity so we can have things like air conditioning. Imagine or just think how we do when we lose electricity. You become what? Miserable. Or coffee, right? If I don't have my coffee, I'm miserable. These, these little blessings from God, or, or think about this, being, being separated from everyone, every good thing, no one to talk to, no one to, to hug, no one to, to cry with. Imagine that the hell is utter separation from everything good. It's utter separation from God and his kindness and his mercy and his grace. It's the absence of all joy, the absence of all friendship, all that is left in hell for the unbelieving is pure, undiluted, righteous wrath. It's pretty awful, isn't it? Hell is more than separation. Hell is torment. In Mark chapter 9, verses 43 and 48, Jesus describes hell as a place of, quote, unquenchable fire. And as a place where the worm does not die, and there's gnashing of teeth, which I take to mean, have a couple meanings there, that one, they're in so much pain, they gnash their teeth, but also anger. You know when you're really angry, you gnash your teeth? God will say, according to Matthew 25, verse 41, to those who reject him to depart into the eternal fire. Andy read Luke 16 for us, and it references the rich man who goes to hell and multiple times in there. I hope you heard it was, while well, Andy read it, he says he's in torment. And he pleads that, that Lazarus could come and, and, and dip the tip of his finger into cool water and, and put it into his mouth, right? Torment, agony. In Matthew 13, verses 41 and 42, Jesus says that the Son of Man will send his angels, again, talking about final judgment, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And catch this part, it says he will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as if the language of Scripture hasn't been strong enough, Revelation 14.10 has the strongest language of all. In Revelation 14.10, we read in Scripture that false worshipers will, quote, drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. So if you just try and imagine the, the worst of all possible scenarios, the worst of all possible suffering in the here and now, you have not yet begun to imagine the awfulness of hell, the torment, the agony of hell. Scripture also teaches that hell is a dark place. It repeatedly says that. So, for example, Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 30 says, Cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And uh, that alone, if you just think about that, you're, you're, you're in hell, the torment of hell. And part of the torment is this. I think that you can, you can hear the cries of agony. You can feel and, and hear, uh, feel the, the heat and maybe sm smell the smoke, but you can't see anything. It's utter blackness, outer darkness. 
You know when you get sick sometimes, that at nighttime it just seems to heighten it? And you really look forward to and long for daylight? The daylight's not coming in hell. The daylight's not coming. And perhaps the worst thing about hell, the most striking, terrifying detail about hell, is that it is eternal. So in Matthew 25 again, Jesus twice refers to hell as eternal. In verse 41, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. And in verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment. In Revelation 14, 11, the suffering of the wicked is described as the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. No rest, day or night. No exit. No relief. No release. No intermission. Have you ever accidentally burned yourself? Maybe you're messing around with a wood stove, or the campfire, or the iron, or you're cooking, uh, but, but just a quick touch, right? It's unsettling, but it dissipates. Have you ever been sunburned? We, we went to Ocean City, New Jersey as a family at the beginning of August or June or July, somewhere around there, time flies. Uh, we all got sunburned, except for my wife. Just look at us, you'll figure that out, why, why, why that is. That's agony, but it dissipates. It doesn't last forever. Hell is eternal. Day and night, no relief. Matthew 13 described hell as a fiery furnace. We took take a moment and just imagine with me. Imagine that for five minutes you had to take your whole body and sit inside a fiery furnace. Five minutes. Would you not by the end of the first minute be screaming to get out of there? And the horror of still four more minutes? That's, that's five minutes. What if it was 15 minutes or 30 minutes or 24 hours? Doesn't your soul begin to, to shrink in terror at that thought? 24 hours, 24 months, 24 years, a thousand years, a million years. And you begin to recognize just the horror of it all that you're in the fiery furnace for a million years and you're no more closer to the end than you were at the beginning because it's what? Eternal. Hell is awful. Hell is not a place where we are reunited with our friends and family and drink beer and have this endless party. Hell is a place of eternal separation, eternal torment, eternal darkness. And I know, I, I've heard the objections. People will say, it's, it's all symbolic. Okay, maybe. But symbols have reference, right? Symbols correspond to things. And 
symbols often pale in comparison to reality. So uh, an illustration that came to my mind is if you say, man, that sun's is, like that spotlight right there that kills me every Sunday, that's as bright as the sun, right, that has, that has a reference to the sun, and that is a symbol of the sun isn't anything compared to the sun, right? And so I'm just trying to help you see that Scripture Maybe if you want to go with that argument and say it's symbols, that doesn't help because the, the object that it's referencing is worse. Right? right? The scripture is trying to pull out the strongest language it can for it to click in your mind that hell is awful. It's, it's not saying, well, symbols is not really that bad. It's saying, no, it's symbols, it's worse. Revelation 14.10 talks about the smoke of hell. You know, you ever been around a campfire and you get smoke in your, in your eyes or, or smoke in your lungs? God wants you to get smoke in your lungs and smoke in your eyes as, as you read Scripture and be struck with the awful reality of it. He's doing everything he can to wake us up to the reality of it. What the Bible is teaching us really is that there's something worse than dying. So is hell real? Yes. What's hell like? Man, it's awful. Who, who goes to hell? And, and, and the answer here might surprise you in a couple ways. It might surprise you, one, to know that this is where Satan and his demons go. This isn't where Satan is now. now we we got to really stop letting media teach us anything. Uh, we watch these movies or cartoons, even from the beginning. I remember as a young boy seeing cartoons where they always portrayed the devil with a pitchfork and a tail and whatever, and he's where? He's in hell. He's not in hell. He's roaming the earth. He's not the warden of hell. He's not in charge of hell. God is in charge of hell. And when the Lord Jesus returns in his blaze of glory, he will throw Satan and uh, his demons into hell. Hell was created as a place for punishment for him, but not just for him for any and all who don't turn from their sin. Who goes to hell? Unrepentant sinners go to hell. So there was a survey done back in 2003 by, by the Barnapol. It's kind of surprising. I would like to see a more recent one. This, this is one of the better ones I could find. Uh, but it showed in, in 2003 that roughly 76% of Americans believe in a heaven and 71% in a hell so it's interesting, seven out of 10 Americans believe in some sort of hell, and again, not necessarily the biblical portrayal of it, but seven out of 10 Americans believe in some sort of hell, but then further looking through the poll, you see only one out of 100 think that they have a good chance of going there. So a lot of Americans apparently believe that God will punish at least some kind of sinners, but few people include themselves in that group, and you've got to ask yourself the question, is that true? Well, not if you listen to Jesus. Because Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, to enter by the narrow gates. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to what? Destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. 
Who are we going to believe, Jesus or the, the, the polls? To who goes to hell? The biblical answer again is unrepentant sinners who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ go to hell. When Paul was asked, remember this great question, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from condemnation, saved from judgment, saved from hell. The Bible is very plain that all those who are not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ who have not turned away from their sin will spend eternity in the awful place of hell. I also want to make plain as we think through this, I said this might surprise you a little bit, who goes to hell? We said Satan and his demons, all those who don't trust in Jesus Christ. But I also just want to narrow it down a little bit more and say that often in the teaching of Jesus, it's the so-called religious person who he would say is very much in danger of the fire of hell. And I think that's very apropos because we're a bunch of maybe perhaps religious people. And Jesus, it seems like every chance he would get when he would talk to a crowd of religious people would warn them about, hey, the fire of hell. And so if you remember, I think it's Matthew 23, where he's surrounded by the Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders of the day, you know, the people everyone else is looking up to to teach them, and he says, woe to you. Woe to you. On the outside, they look so moral and upright. They, they read their Bibles and they go to the synagogue and they pray and they fast. They're very religious. But then Jesus says, no, you're serpents. You're a brood of vipers. And the people you convert, you make them twice a child of hell as you are. Wow. He said that to the religious leaders of the day. There's a lesson there for us, isn't it? It is entirely possible to go to church and still go to hell. It is possible to outwardly convince everyone that you are a Christian. It's possible to look like on the outside you're a Christian, you can sound like a Christian, but on the inside you have this heart that's far from God. And it's not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hell will be filled with the worst people, will be filled with the best people, the moral and the immoral, even those who think they're serving God in the church but are never truly trusting in Jesus. So returning to that question, who goes to hell? Let's, let's just make it personal, huh? If I remain in my sin, if I do not recognize that I am a sinner who has offended God and sinned against the righteous God of the universe, and I don't trust in his son who bore the wrath and the condemnation for my sin, if I don't turn from my sin and trust in him, I'm going to hell. How does someone go to hell? It's easy. Do nothing. Seriously, I've thought about this before, making a tract that asks that question on the front of it, how do I go to hell? And on the inside, it's just blank. Because that's how. You get it? You, you just, just keep doing what you're doing. Pretend like God doesn't exist or keep living your life and trying to build your kingdom apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that's how you go to hell. It's, it's, it's easy. It's your default destination unless you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. So all of this perhaps begs the question then, why is there hell? Is hell real? Yes, what's it like? It's awful, who's going there? A lot of people. Why? Well, the Bible answers because it's punishment for sin. It says it lots of times. You've already heard me say it a few times. Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus says, Go away into eternal 
punishment. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 10 uh, says, Those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus will be punished with an everlasting destruction. So you hear the word punish, punishment? Hell is God's punishment for unrepentant sinners. And this is where the objection comes up. Uh, why would a loving God send good people to hell? You, you hear it maybe phrased other ways. I, I, I just can't believe in a good God who would ever send people to hell. I mean, that, that just seems like too much, right? It, it doesn't seem like the, fun, the punishment fits the crime. It kind of seems like an overreaction. And again, I think that's a fair question because someone, someone doesn't go to jail for life for jaywalking, right? The, the punishment needs to fit the what? The crime. And so it's a good question. Is an eternity in hell a punishment that fits the crime? Is God right to do that? And I believe the biblical answer, and my answer is yes. Why do I think that? Well, if you're following in your notes, I have three points there. One is it displays the holiness of God. Two is it displays the magnitude or gravity of sin. The third, and man, I rejoice in this one, it displays the great love of the Father. So let's, let's think through this. The question is, why does a loving God send good people to hell? And I want you to hear the emphasis there initially on the word loving. Why does a loving God send good people to hell? And, of course, God is love. His, his love is more than anything we could ever comprehend. Psalm 103, verse 11 says, His love is higher than the heavens. That's an amazing verse, higher than the heavens. His, his love is incomprehensible, it tells us. But God is more than love. God is also holy. What does it mean to say that God is holy? It means that God is absolutely, infinitely separate from sin. I've wrestled with how to illustrate his holiness. It's, again, it's, it's difficult to get our minds around because we're so immersed in sin and surrounded by evil and wickedness, right? It's, it's hard to understand. What does it mean that God is holy? So maybe a few, a few illustrations come to mind. Maybe we'll help you. Picture in your mind, if you can, a bleached white, ultra white, as white as you can picture a wall. Maybe it's, I don't know, what is it about... Any, like a dentist, wherever those places you go, it's always like bleached white walls, right? Uh, are you picturing that in your mind? Anything that's like super, super white, bright white, is easily what? Scuffed and marked and soiled and stained. Or if you ever have a white car, I used to have a white car, my word, like everything just shows on that thing, right? So I went and bought a black car. <laughs> that's not why. Uh, now nothing shows. But when, you, when something is absolutely perfectly white, it shows every damage, every defect. And that's, that's the reality of our sin against God, because God is holy, holy, holy. And His holiness magnifies our sinfulness. This is why when God came down on the mountains and He gave the commandments to Israel, He told them, no one touch that mountain, or what? You'll die. This is why when Isaiah sees the glory of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 6, he cries out, Woe to me! I'm ruined. I'm undone. Or when John sees the risen Christ and in Revelation, it says he falls down like a dead man. The, the slightest sin. God is so holy that the slightest sin is an immense offense 
to his holiness. The slightest sin cannot be tolerated by God. Trying to stand in the presence of God with our sin unconfessed and our sin not clothed or robed in the righteousness of Christ would be like tissue paper on the surface of the sun. And this this illustration is a little bit gross, uh, but I'm just trying to help us see the reality and the magnitude of sin. Imagine that uh, someone gives you a, a, a tall, ice-cold glass of milk, right? White, refreshing milk. But then I tell you, oh, by the way, I, I put a few drops of the AIDS virus blood in that. What's your reaction to that glass of milk? You're repulsed by it, right? And that's gross. Get that away from me, right? That's God's reaction to sin. He's repulsed by it. And for us, it's not just one or two drops of sin. The Bible teaches we are wholly contaminated by sin. So we're wholly contaminated, right? And he's utterly, infinitely holy. Imagine his response, his reaction to sin. So why does God send unrepentant sinners to hell for punishment? The answer is because he's more than loving, he's holy. It's the right and just thing for a holy God to do. Because God is holy, he is rightly angry with our sin. So Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here we run into that, that, that dilemma that people seem to have is, well, how can God be wrathful and loving? Can he be both? Yes, so are you. So am I, right? I can prove to you very, very easily through a couple of illustrations how you can be wrathful and loving and how those two things actually go together. And if you say you're loving and you don't have wrath, I don't believe you. And I can illustrate it this way. If, if I was to tell you that uh, your spouse was cheating on you, how would you react? If, if I told you that your spouse was cheating on you and you just kind of shrugged your shoulders like, no big deal. Whatever. I would look at you, maybe even want to shake you, and say, what's wrong with you? Right? Don't you care? Don't you what? Love your spouse? You see, I would attribute the lack of anger with a lack of love. If you love your spouse, there should be what? Anger, wrath at the betrayal. Where there is no love, I would argue there is no wrath. Or I can illustrate it another way. We live on, I think most of us know where South Norris Road is. We live on South Norris Road. People like to drive down that like it's the German Autobahn, you know. There's no, like, there's no speed limit. And so if I was to look outside my window, and we have, of course, a rule in our house that the kids are not supposed to go past the bush in front of our house. And if they go past that, wrath comes out. Uh, but, and part of that is because another, I don't know, 20 feet, and there's the Autobahn blasting by our house. So if we were to look out our window and see our children playing in the road, the wrath of the dad would come out. Not because I don't love them, but because I love them. Yes? If you were to tell me that there's a squirrel playing in the road, I'd look at you like... Okay, what do you want me to do? 
but children in the road who we love, wrath is stirred. And so you see, a God who loves is a God whose wrath is stirred rightly against sin. So hell demonstrates that God is holy and loving. It also demonstrates just how sinful we really are. The, the question is, why does a loving God send good people to hell? And here I want to emphasize that word good. You see, that's a loaded question. It's assuming some things. One, it's assuming this, that we're good. And I know that's what everything assumes out there in today's world. The Bible does not. The Bible certainly does teach we were created good. God created the heavens and the earth, and Adam and Eve, and all that's in it, and he looked at it, it was good, it was very good. It didn't take long, though, for sin and rebellion, and we go from good to ruined by sin, destroyed by sin. So much so that Romans 3 and 9 says we're enslaved by sin, and there's no one righteous, and there's no one who does good. That's how much sin has corrupted us. There's no one righteous, no one who does good. So why eternity in a place as awful as hell? Is that just? I think so, yes, for a couple of reasons, thinking about the gravity of sin. Number one, it's because we sin against God, and I think we miss this all the time. We tend to define sin in relation to us and how it offends us, but that's not biblically how sin is being defined. Yes, sin has that, that, that avenue, right? But sin is mostly aimed this way, vertically towards God. And so sin is awful because sin is against God, who we just talked about is what? Holy, holy, holy. The problem is not God. The problem is not hell. The problem is sin. That's the problem. We sin against the holy God. When we, when we sin, it's not a blunder, a mistake, an oops, or an accident. It's infinite offense against the infinite holiness of God. And again, I know we struggle with this because it's like that question, does a fish know it's wet? Right? They're so surrounded by it all the time, do they know that they're wet? And we're so inundated and surrounded by sin, we're blind to a lot of our sinfulness. So we need to see the, the gravity of sin is not measured by the sin itself, but by the value and worth of the one being sinned against. Are we catching that? I'm going to say that again because that's, that's crucial to this, this whole thought that uh, the gravity of sin is not measured by the sin itself, but the value and the worth of the one that we sin against. Are we catching that? So I have another illustration that's a little bit gross. And it's not original to me, uh, but I came across thought it was really good. And the illustration goes like this. Imagine that you come across an individual who is mercilessly pulling the legs off a grasshopper. What an awful person, right? So there's that grasshopper, and the guy's just yanking the legs off the grasshopper. A little bit weird, but you're not really that bothered by that, right? So let's up the ante, huh? Let's say you come across the same person, and this time they're not pulling legs off a grasshopper, this time they're pulling legs off a frog. Again, kind of weird. Maybe he likes fried frog legs, but you're not terribly bothered by it. Then you come across this guy, and here's a puppy. 
and this guy is yanking the legs off the puppy. Starting to get more offended? What do you want to do? You want to run over there and rescue that dog and report that person, right? Let's up it a little bit more, huh? What if the same guy is trying to yank the legs off a child, off an infant? Pretty offended by that, huh? The guy yanking the leg off the grasshopper doesn't really compel me to do anything, but the guy yanking uh, the legs off an infant, that's going to compel me to act heroically and save that child, right? Now, what's the difference in those scenarios? Why would you react with indifference to the grasshopper, but passionate intervention to save the baby? And the difference in each of those scenarios is what? The one being sinned against. You see, you react differently because the seriousness of the sin is not measured merely by the sin itself, but is measured by the value and worth of the one being sinned against. And therefore, sin is worthy of infinite punishment because it is sin against God Almighty. You see? And added to this is just the fact that People in, in hell, they're not repentant. You know, they're, they're gnashing their teeth. They're angry. They're mad. They're furious. They're, they're, they're in rebellion. So, so people, people in, in hell aren't up there re repenting. People in hell are not deeply sorry for their sin. It's, it's filled with people who for all eternity are shaking their fist at God. And so why does a loving God send sinners to hell? For eternity? Because of the offense of the sin. They've sinned against God Almighty, and they're not repenting. They continue in that sin for eternity. That's called justice. Not cruelty, but justice. And this leads us to this last thought. Why is there a hell? This one might surprise you. I hope it does. And I hope the Spirit takes this and makes your heart sing. I hope the Holy Spirit takes this and grants you faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because I believe with all my heart that why, why is there a hell? Because it displays the love of God. It displays the love of God. The question is, why does a loving God send good people to hell? We've seen that's a loaded question. God is loving, but he's more than loving. He's holy and just and righteous. Uh, but also, God does not send good people to hell. He sends unrepentant sinners to hell. If you go to hell, the, the blame is squarely on your shoulders. We are rebels who deserve the punishment of our sins. Sinners have only themselves to blame. So in light of that, I, I just want to say this. I think we're asking the wrong question. I think that question, why does a loving God send good people to hell, is the totally wrong question. In fact, I told you it's a loaded question, but it's also the wrong question that leads to wrong answers. The better question, the right question is this, is how, oh how, oh how, can a God who is righteous and infinitely holy Take us who are so sinful and bring us to heaven. How, how can he do that and still be just? That's the question. That's the question. 
How, how can those who deserve hell go to heaven and God not compromise his character? And the answer is the cross. The cross. John 3.16, a verse that we know well, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not what? Perish. That's, that's eternal condemnation in hell. Should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. So God loves in the fact that he sent his son Jesus to be our sinless savior, to die on the cross, to take the penalty for our sin. And Jesus loves us so much that he did this willingly. And the Holy Spirit loves us so much that he opens our hearts to receive this truth. So I want this, this truth, and oh, I prayed that this truth would, would grip your hearts this morning, that, that Jesus took your hell on the cross so that you don't have to. Think about it again. What is hell? Hell is punishment for sin. 1 Peter 2.24 says Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. What's that? That's Jesus taking our punishment for sin. What is hell? It's separation from God. Remember that? It's separation from God. What does Jesus cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. That's Jesus being forsaken by the Father. All sense of the Father's presence and love was gone. He has loneliness in his place. What is hell? It's torment. It's agony. And Jesus, while he hung on the cross, had no relief, no comfort. He was drinking down the, the full fury and righteous wrath of the Father for our sin. He suffered in his body the racking pain of crucifixion, but in his soul the immense agony of despair and loneliness and horror as God the Father charged to his account the sins of those who believe. Can you hear him like the rich man in Luke 16 crying out, I thirst? The agony he was enduring. But there was no relief. What is hell? It's outer darkness. And what happens as Christ is hanging on the cross, taking the penalty for sin, it tells us that the whole world turns dark. Are you seeing it? Jesus experienced hell on the cross. Jesus absorbed hell in the place of sinners. He did that so he could offer heaven to you. Do you see how much God loves? Do you see how great the love of the Savior is? Do you see the love of the Spirit that they orchestrated and foreordained and planned all this? To rescue sinners. Hell is not a blemish on God's love. Hell is the opposite. Hell magnifies God's love by showing us this is how far he went to rescue you from hell. I think I need to say that again. Hell is not a blemish on God. Hell is the fullest display you can imagine of a God and his love. 
Again, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you believe in Jesus, you will not perish. If you believe in Jesus, you will not go to hell. Hell is completely avoidable. It would be one thing, and by the way, there are religions out there that teach this, and it's, it's, it's very unbiblical, but it would be one thing if God said, hey, if you believe in my son, I'll reduce your payment down to one year. He doesn't even say that, does he? You don't have to spend one year, five days, five months, five minutes, five seconds, five milliseconds, none of it. You don't have to spend any of that in hell. Because Jesus absorbed the wrath of hell for you if you believe in his son. If you believe in Jesus, you are not going to hell. If you believe in Jesus, you will not perish. If you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. But if you refuse to believe, you will perish. You will go to hell. That choice is yours, and that may hurt you, that may offend you, but I'm more concerned about your eternal destiny than your temporal comfort. So I, I hope through this, this whole message, you could hear the word of God, and you could hear the love of God. And I would just say to you what Charles Spurgeon said to his congregation many, many, many years ago, if sinners be damned, let them at least be damned over our bodies. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? So I'm pleading with you. Hell is real. Hell is awful. Hell is your default destination. It's mine too. I deserve it. But hell is avoidable. If you'll recognize your sin place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who took hell for you on the cross. If you believe in him, you will not perish.